Live from the basement of Voodoo Sound, it's time to get your mojo working. I got my mojo working, but it just won't work on you. Take the next 40 odd minutes to get your hands on some tips and tools that will get you working at your best in both your business and your personal life. Hey everybody and welcome to the Mojo Radio Show. Nice to have you on the bus, the big red bus we call the Mojo Radio Show. We're getting all sporty. We're getting all spit of sporty spice this week. We've got a guest on the show who's a sports psychologist who's an expert in mental mental toughness, mental toughness and how we train for it. Big show ahead. Uh, before we get into it, driving the big red bus. Robbo, welcome. How are you going, mate? It's a little bit lonely on the big red bus today. Uh, There's an empty seat across the console from me. Where are you? Yes, I am in the beautiful city of Melbourne. I'm staying at the lovely Crown Towers. Uh, thank you, thank you, thank you, Mr. Packer, <laughs> uh, which is a casino. But I'm working with Cricket Australia today and mm. being a sports lover, especially a cricket lover, mm. uh, looking forward to my opportunity to speak to the guys today. I'm doing a keynote speech for Cricket Australia. And uh, it ties in with our sporting theme of the day. So, um, so in, as part of your speech today, have you worked in a two for twenty two? <laughs> <laughs> That's too cliche. <laughs> R.I.P. Richie, one of the greatest commentators of all time. Absolutely. When it comes to congratulating one of your teammates, there's simply no better way of doing it than with the traditional Australian hug or a kiss or a lick, a grope on the arse or a bit of a dry root. It's still the most appropriate way, I think, of showing one's exuberance and excitement and it's certainly the most masculine and manly way of going about it. The Mojo Radio Show. So, folks, let me set this up for you. Uh, check out this resume. Our guest today is the Director of Mental Training for the St. Louis Cardinals and he has helped the team win their first World Series in over 20 years. Then he did it again when he assisted the Cardinals to, to a historic feat of winning their second World Championship in just a six-year period. Get this, he's a regular contributor to Forbes, Inc. Magazine, Shape, ABC, CBS, ESPN, NBC and all the other three-letter acronyms. <laughs> He's been featured in USA Today, CNBC and Men's Health, and he's worked with athletes in the NFL, NHL, NBA, PGA, LPGA and NASCAR. Wow. He's a best-selling sports psychology author. And I'm just going to say up front, the reason that I asked Dr. Jason Selk to be on the show is that he wrote a book called 10-Minute Toughness, and it's a book that I rate is probably one of my best reads in the last five, maybe even ten years. That book alone is the most prescriptive book for showing you how to get ready for, in my case, speaking engagements or like sporting events or if you've got to give a speech at a wedding or there is a time when you have to deliver. It is the, it's a short book, but it's a very prescriptive book about how to put yourself, you call it the lane or in the zone or getting you in the, mentally in the right place, building resilience and grit. This guy, his work and his books, I've got to say, I rate very highly. So Dr. Jason Selk, welcome to the Mojo Radio Show. Thanks so much for having me. It's a real pleasure. Now, mate, just to set things up for everybody listening, when somebody asks you what you do, how do you reply? Well, that's a good question. It really kind of depends on who's asking. But I would say the typical response is I'm a sports psychology consultant. And then they say, sports psychology, what's that? And I say, really what I'm being paid to do is to help people perform at a higher level. Nice. Well, you come to the right place, mate. (laughs) (laughs) 
I just want to take you back a few years. What I was curious about is in your freshman year, you had a choice as to what you were going to do, and but you chose, let's call it mental therapy over physical therapy. Why, why at that time in your life did you go in that direction? You know, when I was, so I was a senior in high school and football was a really important thing. I was thinking I might have a chance to play at the next level. And the first game of my senior year, I blew my knee out, and that was really the end of my dream of playing football at the next level. And to work through the injury, obviously, I was going through physical therapy, and I didn't realize it at the time. The gal that was performing the physical therapy had me hooked up to the stem and so forth. She was doing the exercises, but she always sat there with me, and it took me until I was a freshman in college to figure out that the real value for me wasn't necessarily her putting my leg back together, but the conversations we had on how I could deal with not having football in my life. So, you know, it it took a, again, the first semester, but once I realized it, it really made sense to me. And then it was kind of off to the races. I, I didn't look back once I realized it was more about the mental, emotional, aspect of it than the physical at least for me we're going to delve into being mentally tough i guess my question is if there's somebody listening to this on their way to work or they're listening on their phone about at the gym somewhere how does someone know if they are mentally tough jason we'll talk about what it is and the processes you talk about I'm curious to know, how does someone know if they are or not? To me, I think the easiest way to know if you're mentally tough is, do you thrive on adversity? See, again, there's some really important fundamentals for people to know. Number one, it's biologically normal for people to focus on problems. It's called PCT, problem-centric thought. And for whatever reason, every human being is built this way, that our brains, by nature, focus on the negative or the problems in life. And we have a tendency to overlook all those good things. I'll give you an example. Oxygen is the most valuable resource to our species. But when is the last time you or anyone you know thought, wow, this is a great life I've got. I've got complete access to the most valuable resource known to our species, and I don't even have to work very hard to get it. You see, most people don't think that way. Instead, when's the last time you thought to yourself, I don't have enough money? I don't have enough love. I don't have enough respect. I don't have enough you fill in the blank. See, that's PCT. That's how our brains are built. Now, to complicate things, there's, always, there's also something known as expectancy theory. It's really the root of all psychology. And expectancy theory states that which you focus on expands. So if you think about it, normal people are walking around. It's completely normal to focus on the negative or the problems in life. But the bad news is 
by doing what's completely normal, we actually create more of the negative or the bad things in life. All right, so going back to mental toughness, I would say mental toughness is the exact opposite of that. That when a person is experiencing adversity, so whether it's a baseball player who's dealing with an injury or it's bad weather that he's trying to pitch in or he's going up against a, a hitter who typically has great success against him. If, if that pitcher can focus on his strength or the things that he can control to be successful instead of the obvious adversity, I would call that a pure example, a pure definition of mental toughness, being able to thrive on adversity. When somebody's having these negative thoughts and we you said we're naturally kind of programmed to go down that track. When someone starts going down that laneway and something happens that causes them to think this way and then, of course, it propagates itself and then a second thing happens and we start to go, everything's going to crap, this is where it's destined, nothing is going right. What I like about your stuff, Jason, is it's very prescriptive, is there is a stepping stone of things that I can actually do how do I break this negative cycle? Because that negative cycle, as we've seen in many in the media, can end up in a pretty dark place, end up in tragic circumstances. Unfortunately, yeah, you're so true. How does someone break that? Like what's what's the process you would take that, let's say a baseball player through or there's a sales guy that lost a sale, then he loses a second sale. So he's in that thing on the way down as well. What do I do? Okay, so it's... That was the whole premise behind the concept of the mental workout, that mental toughness, it's certainly abnormal, but it can be learned. We know that we can retrain our brains so that mental toughness actually becomes more normal than the normal mental weakness, if you will. Okay, but just like your bicep is a muscle, your brain is a muscle. It's completely normal for my bicep to be weak. If I want my bicep to be strong, I have to engage in very abnormal activities. I have to, on a regular basis, go do the bicep curls to strengthen the muscle. The same is true for the brain. If I want the mental toughness, I have to do certain exercises proactively to develop the strength so that when it's needed, when I do experience adversity, I can lean on or use that strength. So I'd say once it starts, if there's not been any real training, it's going to be very difficult to interrupt that thought process. That's why It's so common for so many people to have that negative spiral, as you talked about. But I think, you know, my approach has always been to solve the problem instead of, you know, putting a a Band-Aid on a bullet hole. I want to get the bullet hole. I want to get the bullet out and clean the whole arm up. And I think that's where the mental workout comes in, that if you'll spend, 
in the 10 minute toughness case, if you're a, if you're an athlete, if you'll spend the three minutes and 40 seconds a day working on some of these more impactful mental or performance tools that just as if you do the bicep curls, you cannot stop the brain from developing the mental toughness. And then it just becomes a matter of being able to recognize when in fact you're going down that negative spiral. And then you can choose to use any of those tools that you've worked on to redirect your thoughts and get them more focused on solutions or strength. Here's an odd question for you that I'd never thought of before, but hearing you speak and in the world we currently live in, if I'm going to the gym tonight and I'm going to do bicep curls to work on my arms, is there a, an exercise, a mental exercise, that I could do at the same time that you would prescribe to me so that whilst I'm physically working, I could also be mentally working to help me be more resilient. Is there something that you would say, yes, you could do this exercise in your mind that would be strengthening your mind as well as your muscles? No, I wouldn't, and I'll tell you why. What you have to understand about the brain is the mind can only fully focus on one thing at a time. So what I would advise you is I'd say, okay, look, do a set of bicep curls. And then when you're waiting the 30 or 60 seconds or two minutes before doing another one, that's where we can do some of the mental workout. But I don't want you to do it at the same time because I know if you're trying to strengthen your brain and your at the same time, you're going to compromise the quality of work on both. It would be essentially like trying to do legs and bicep curls at the same time. People don't do it because you know you're going to compromise the quality of work on each. But again, with the mind, with the mind, I think what you'll find is it doesn't take it doesn't require large amounts of time in the training to actually develop the mental strength. It actually takes far more time for a bicep or a quadricep to develop strength-wise than it does for us to develop our brain. A small amount of work goes a long way when it comes to mental toughness. I know Jason's right, Gary, because I can actually eat Tim Tams and drink coffee. I find that really difficult to do at the same time, though. Same time? Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. No, you are. You've really contributed this. This conversation has just gone to a new level thanks to that contribution. Jason, if, if we know this stuff and... I, as I said at the head of the show, I, I think that 10-Minute Mental Toughness is the most prescriptive book for putting us in that place. We hear about a lot today about the world of resilience and grit, which I'll come to in a second. I think it's fair to say it's been exposed a lot through your books, people's writings, keynote speeches. If we know it's doable and we have a desire for it, it's a topic that people are crying out for why aren't more people doing it? I think that there are a lot of people doing it. I mean, I, I know that 10-Minute uh, Toughness, at least here in the States, has become very, very well-read. There are a lot of professional athletes out there. I think, I think the majority, uh, maybe that's a stretch, but I think many, many professional athletes across sports know about 10-Minute Toughness. It, it really has gained in popularity over the last 10 years, and it's still... I would say today more popular than it was even when it first came out. So I think 
there are a lot of people who do engage in the work, but you're right. There are a lot of people who still won't do it. And I'd say, I think, I think there are two real reasons why more people aren't doing it. Number one, I think people are lazy. I think, unfortunately, you've, you've got a lot of people out there that want to achieve great things, but for whatever reason, they're just too lazy to do the work necessary to make it happen. All right now, I think the second reason, and I see this a lot with people who are motivated, who, who understand the benefits and who really do have the desire, and even the work ethic is there. I'd tell you that it's because people disrespect channel capacity. Channel capacity is the biological bandwidth our brains have. And unfortunately, we'd like to believe that we have more capacity than we actually do. So in this day and age of people being inundated with blogs and books and podcasts and coaching and everybody's hearing from different sources how to do things a different way or a better way, I think in an attempt to try to be great at so many things, people are losing sight of being great at the most important things, the fundamentals. And I think that's one of the strengths of 10-Minute Toughness. It really is a fundamentally sound book on how to develop mental toughness. I think it was the first book of its kind, and I really still would make the argument it's the best mental training program in existence that I think from a fundamental standpoint, if people would understand, again, you know, like with your bicep curl, there are only so many different ways you can do the bicep curl. But in the end, what it boils down to is if you want to have strong biceps, you got to go do bicep curls. <laughs> and it's the same thing here. If you, if you want to have mental toughness, you can, you can try to, do it a thousand different ways and maybe not spend as much time or do it this way or do it that way. But in the end, it comes down to you must do the work that has been scientifically proven to make the mental toughness appear. And that's where 10 minute toughness is. It's completely science-based. And I think I did a fairly good job of making it as efficient as possible in three minutes and 40 seconds. You cannot stop but developing the mental strength necessary to start having thought control, the control of your thoughts that will cause you to perform better in good times as well as through adversity. How do you manage your own channel capacity? Because I, I am buying into everything you're saying. How, do you, how does Jason Silk manage your own channel capacity with all this information that's floating around? You're at the top of your game. You'd be taking stuff in. You'd be using stuff, adapting, learning. What's your own personal process, system, approach to it? I'm, I'm very legislative. I'm very judicious on what I allow to get my attention. So, for example, I don't watch much TV. I, when I start the day, I'm, I'm not going to let myself watch TV and get my mind focused on all the things going on in the world, all the things I should be confused on. Now, many people might say, well, you don't know what's going on. You're not up to current events. And there's going to be some truth in that. But I'm going to control what comes into my mind. When it comes to reading and learning new information, I only allow myself once per day 
And usually the time frame is somewhere between five and 15 minutes that I will allow myself to focus on learning new things. And that means that in any one given day, I'm not going to read multiple books or listen to multiple podcasts or read multiple blogs. I'm going to give myself, again, a five to 15 minute window, and it can only be one resource that I'm trying to learn from. Now, I try to do that every day, but those would be a couple of examples of how I'm controlling what's coming in. Because remember, with channel capacity, it's a little bit like our phone. We all have the camera and the photo album on our phones. And the great thing about technology is when the, when the photo album gets full, you go to take a new picture. The phone says your, your photo album is full. You can't take any new photos. And then you get to go in and decide what photos you delete before you take the next one that comes in. The problem with channel capacity is we don't get to decide what we delete before the new information comes in. The way it works is new information comes in. If you accept it, old information is released and it's random. You don't get to decide if it's good information, important information or not. And, and that's why I think people are being showered these days with so much new information. Just realize we're all at this point in our lives, probably running at our capacity with channel capacity. So all the new information comes in, you're releasing old information. You just don't get to decide what information is being released. So I'm, I'm very careful with allowing only certain amounts of new information to come in. So it actually is like a laptop. So you've only got certain capacity in your laptop. But then when you reach capacity, it will take no more in. But what you're saying is the brain will then start to delete files, but you don't have a choice about what it deletes in order to make room for new information. Is that, what, is that actually what you're saying? That's exactly what it is. That's exactly what the science tells us about our brain. That's exactly what channel capacity is. So can, with, a, with a laptop, you can upgrade your hard drive. Can we do that with our brains at all? Or is that, is it, is that a finite thing? You know, that, that's a terrific question. And my, my answer without having science on this one, but my answer would be yes, at some degree. You know, I think with your computer, you can go out and you can buy double the storage. No, we cannot buy double the mental capability uh, that we currently have. But we could get more efficiency from our brains. And I think when you say, okay, so how would you create more efficiency? That's when it comes down to things like how much sleep are you getting a night? I know I just uh, did some work with one of the most renowned sleep experts in the world. And he said, a person really needs to be getting a minimum of eight hours sleep. And really what you want to try to get is nine hours sleep. Uh, the other thing would be nutrition. Are you eating very healthy diet and getting the right amount of water intake? And then the third, and it may be more important than the previous two, cardiovascular exercise. I think the science on this is if you will get 30 minutes cardiovascular exercise on a daily basis where your heart rate is 130 beats a minute for the 30 minutes, what that's going to do is it's going to give a great amount of oxygenation to the brain, which will, in effect, cause more efficiency with the channel capacity. Justin, can we just camp on your – I love the idea of uh, your own channel capacity, how you manage that. You mentioned how acutely aware you are of taking new information in. 
What does the first hour of your day look like with a guy who is renowned at having information and being authority on mental toughness? How do you set up your day in your first hour? Yeah, so I'll, I'll even break it down to more than the first hour. I'll kind of give you the morning routine. First of all, I think it's really important for me I make sure I have a lights out curfew and I typically like to get to bed by 9 PM every night. And that's because I know that I want to get up at five o'clock every morning. And that gives me kind of that eight hour of sleep that I know is kind of recommended. I'll get up at five. And in the first hour, I try to do uh, some of the more or some of the less important things. In my opinion, email is one of the less important items that I'll get to in a day. Now I'll take the first hour because I'm still a little groggy when I wake up. Uh, So I'm having my cup of coffee. I'm sitting on my couch in my office and I'll spend maybe the the first 30 minutes going through emails. And again, I want to make sure I try to get back in touch with people that have emailed me. So I think it's an important piece of the day and it's really good to do it right there in the first 30 minutes when I'm really still getting into the groove. All right. And and then what I'll do is I'll take another 30 minutes, maybe hour. And if I'm in a writing phase where I just finished book number four, I'll spend 30 minutes or an hour, depending on what the, you know, what the requirements are. I'll spend 30 to, to 60 minutes writing. If I'm not writing a book, I'm generally having to contribute to articles and so forth. So I'll generally at minimum have at least 30 minutes of writing right there. And there's my first hour. Right after that, then what I want to do is to really jumpstart the day, I'm going to get my 30 minutes of exercise. And I just do it right at the house. I've got an elliptical at the house. I've got a recumbent bike. I've got an upright bike. Depending on the day, I'll just get on there and do 30 minutes of cardiovascular exercise. And then what I'm going to do, I'm going to start now getting into the more important things. So I'm going to hit what I call the process goals. I'm going to try to get my process goals done before nine o'clock AM. So an example might be if I know to keep generating business, what I need to do is reach out to an important Uh, center of influence, I might right then and there call or email a center of influence. But I'm going to get a a few of those really important activities business-wise done right there, right after the exercise. And of course, I've showered and I've I've got myself dressed and ready for the day. Now, once eight o'clock hits, then it really comes where I've got typically each day, five to six hours worth of phone calls or coaching calls or in-person coaching in my office. And then uh, again, I'll try to finish and I'll try to get home. And it's really important to me. And one of the things I focus on in the mental workout is getting home at the right time, having the right energy so that when I get home, I can really be focused on having the right energy and focus as a husband and father. A couple of things I want to dig into before we let you go. I, I, would like you to just speak about Coach John Wooden, who arguably, and you can fill us in as to whether this is correct or not, but arguably one of the greatest coaches of all time. And I've heard you speak of Coach Wooden before and the association that you had with him and your meeting of him. 
the one thing I'd like you to talk about is the ritual that Coach John Wooden had for the first training session of every season. He had he had a a way of approaching that to set up some of the, I guess, the psychological structure for his players for the season ahead. Can you talk about that for us? Yeah, it's very interesting. So remember, Coach Wooden, he was the head basketball coach at UCLA. And when he was there, he had some of the best players in the world on his team. And he went on, he won in a 12-year period, 10 national championships, which if you're not a college basketball fan in the States, it's unheard of. It's unparalleled. I can't think that it will ever be repeated. But the first day of practice, every season, bar none, what he did was he taught the players how to put their socks and shoes on appropriately. Right now, a lot of people think that that was mainly because he wanted his players to not have blisters. And and certainly that was one of the reasons. I asked him about it, and there was so much more to it than what most people think. First of all, what he said was he was setting the tone for teaching his players to focus on the details. And one of the things I heard him say was oftentimes it's the little things done well that creates excellence. And so he was just really kind of setting the tone and he would spend 15, 20 minutes teaching the players how to put the socks on and then how to put the shoes on, how to lace them up appropriately so that no blisters occur. All right. Now the next thing that he said, and I asked him about, he said, another really important thing was coach wouldn't like to run a very fast, efficient practice. So much so that if a player had to stop to retie his shoes, it would, it would break the flow and the rhythm of the practice. And that was one of the other reasons. So it was, number one, we don't want our players to have blisters so that they mispractice or game. Number two, we don't want to, in any one practice, have to stop to retie our shoes. Number three, we want to make sure that people understand the importance of detailed thinking. And then the fourth thing that comes out of this is, and you have to understand, if you were a senior on the team, you're now going through your fourth year of this same exact instruction on how to put your socks and shoes on. Okay. And that's the whole idea of the importance of repetition. In fact, coach Wooden said there were eight laws of learning. I'm going to walk you through the eight laws of learning real quick based on John Wooden. Law number one, explanation. Number two, demonstration. Number three, imitation. Number four, repetition. Number five, repetition. Number six, repetition. Number seven, repetition. Number eight, repetition. <laughs> nice. <laughs> so he, he knew the importance of repetition. And it's a really important thing. Great coaches, they know the importance. They use repetition. Whereas I think you got a lot of rookie coaches, a lot of new coaches, they're afraid of repetition. 
So I think that's what I learned from Coach Wooden about the importance of putting your socks and shoes on the right way. That's echoed in a lot of things, isn't it? I coach my kids' rugby team over here and the Australian Rugby Union run a course that I attended for coaches. And one of the things they talked about is that it takes over a 1,000 repetitions of the same act. So in let's say in rugby passing the football and passing it correctly, it takes over a 1,000 repetitions of that for it to become mechanical, for it to become something that just happens. Does that sound right to you? Yeah, it sounds right. And, uh, you know, I've heard it a number of different ways. And that's with the kind of muscle memory, the physical part. Think about, too, he's talking about the repetition for the mental memory. And what I'd tell you, and there's all kinds of different science on this, I'd tell you for mental memory, somebody needs to hear something between seven and 19 times before they're fully equipped to say they understand it, before they get it. So, you know, and again, I don't know if it's seven, eight, nine, ten, whatever it might be, but I've heard between seven and 19 times. It doesn't matter to me. I'm not going to count. What that says to me is if it's important, I'm going to repeat it, repeat it, repeat it, repeat it, repeat it, repeat it. Jason, as a mental toughness coach, you have said before that you carry little or no stress, which is just such a refreshing thing to hear. What's your mental process in your own world to dealing and handling stress? Yeah, so it's um, it, it sounds simple, but again, it comes down to training. It's simple because I've trained and I still train on this, but whenever I experience stress, and because I don't experience it very often, I'm these days very, very sensitive, even very small amounts of stress get my attention quickly. What that says to me, it's a cue that says to me, okay, you're letting your go to that PCT, that problem-centric thinking. You're thinking about a problem. And I know that the goal then is to very quickly identify what I can control, what solution exists to the problem. So I simply ask myself this question. What is one thing I can do differently that could make this better? Now, in asking that question, it forces my mind to now focus on things that I can control. One of the biggest indicators or causes of stress is people feeling like they're not in control of their situation. And it's a matter of perspective. Again, most people are built biologically that their brains are going to focus on the things they can't control. Mm. We can learn to change that thinking. And again, it's a two-step process. First, Anytime you experience a negative emotion, it means you're allowing your thoughts to focus on the problem or something you can't control. Step two then is to remind yourself to identify what you can control, what you can do to improve the situation, even if it's just an inch of improvement. Remember that what you focus on expands. Mm. So if I can get my thoughts to what I can control or what I can improve, that will expand as opposed to normal people that just allow themselves to focus on the problem or what they can't control, which will then lead to, as we've discussed, that negative spiral of thinking and behavior. What's false confidence? And I'm particularly interested in the level 
of sportsperson that you do work with or have worked with, you must have met guys that seemingly had a, a false confidence. Can you explain your take on that? Like how does that happen and, and how do we know that it's false confidence? Um, you know, I've really been lucky. I think to make it to the professional sports world or even if you're talking about the Olympic level or Division One college athletics, that faulty self-confidence really has been weeded out for the most part. Now, I certainly do understand what you're talking about. And again, if somebody, whether it's they have false confidence or just for whatever reason the confidence is low, I think one of the best things a person can do is identify process goals. Those two or three activities daily that will cause the results the person is looking for. And then that's what you teach the person to really focus on and evaluate success with. So instead of, you know, a baseball player judging success on how many hits did I get in the game, it's more, did you do the work in preparation and did you follow your process in the game? And if the answer is yes, I did the work and I followed the process, don't worry about the result because if we have the right process in place, if you just keep focusing on the process, the results will, in fact, come. So it's really all about, in my mind, developing confidence comes from understanding, identifying, and executing the right process daily. If, if we stay on that track for a second, Jason, we've got a lady coming up who we've had on the show before, uh, Professor Lee Waters, who's got a new book that's just been released called Strength Switch. And it's about raising children by focusing on the strengths and the processes that go with that. And I've heard you speak about another legendary coach, a football coach in America called Bear Bryant, and his process of, of his playing back video to his team members. Could you just talk us through what Bear Bryant did and why he did what he did when he was with his players and what he chose to focus on? Yeah, and again, it boils down to expectancy theory. That which you focus on expands. So what Bear Bryant did was in film session after the game, he would never show a player a play they did or executed poorly. Instead, he would show the player the plays he did well. And if there wasn't a play that the player himself did well, he would show the film of a teammate doing that job or that task well. And I think Bear Bryant was well ahead of his time in that he understood that if he kept showing his players what they were doing poorly, that's what would expand. They would, they would continue to do poor execution. Whereas the fastest way to improve a person's performance is to get in their head the improvement, the solution, instead of having them replay the mistake over and over. I love that. Thanks, Gold. Gold! Is 
there a difference? Something I was thinking about last night, knowing we we're going to talk today, Jason, is there a difference between mental toughness, resilience and grit? Is there a difference or are they coming from the same place? Are there subtleties to it? How would you separate them if you would at all? I think that they're... I think that you could say that they're the same thing. Now, I think what I've done is really try to, as you said, make it prescriptive for people. You know, I think it's one thing to tell a person that they need to be or should be mentally tough or have grit. I think it's a completely different thing to show them how to develop the mental toughness and the grit. And again, I'd liken it to when a trainer says to a, to an athlete, you need to be strong. You have to get your body strong. And I think most people just assume, okay, well, if you tell them they need to be strong, they know what to do. That's not fair. That's why the trainer not only needs to show them the importance of being physically strong, but also then show them the most backed in science, methods of efficiently developing the strength that they have as the goal. And I think that's what I've really tried to do in 10 minute toughness and in the work I do with athletes and now um, business people. Are you a journaler? Do you do a lot of journaling, Jason? Uh, I, I actually, the only journaling I do would be the success logs. And, and again, it's uh, really a prescriptive piece. It's in 10 minute toughness that at the end of the day, what I try to do is recognize two or three things I did well. I ask myself, what's the one thing I want to improve tomorrow? And the one step of action that I can take to help make the improvement. So I guess you could say that's journaling, but it's, it's very strategic and, you know, it only takes me at most two to three minutes time to get through that. Yeah, it's kind of gratitude meets Bear Bryant in a way, isn't it? Because you are grateful for what you did well, you're focusing on the positive, but then you in a positive affirmation while you're looking at what the next thing is. Yep, very much so. You have worked with some super successful people who probably weren't successful when they started but got to the success they dreamt of. You are around, you're studying it, you're surrounded by this and you're working and coaching people on a daily basis. What are the attributes of the most successful people? And I don't just mean success as in the outcomes, but success could, in my mind, also be people who nailed their process goals. What are the attributes that you would attribute to people who are the most successful? It's, it's again, a really good question. And I wrote about this in my last book, Organized Tomorrow Today. It's my favorite quote. It's on page six. Here's the quote. Highly successful people never get everything done in any one given day. However, they always get their most important activities done each and every day. Okay, so I firmly believe prioritizing is the single most underrated skill of the highly successful. I believe that is the difference between highly successful people and normal people. Again, they don't get everything done, but they always get the most important things done. And if I were going to be prescriptive, be specific with people, I would say the key is you must on a daily basis know 
what your three most important activities are. And of the three most important, what is the one must that needs to get done that day? And what I'd do is I'd start the day and I would always get that one most important, the one must absolutely is prioritized over everything else. And then if possible, I'd try to get all three of those most important. And like I said earlier, I'd try to do that first thing in the day so that by nine, 10 o'clock in the morning, it didn't matter what happened. I'd already won the day because I got my three most important activities done. It's a little bit like a baseball team putting 20 runs up in the first inning. You can screw up a whole lot the rest of the day, and you're still going to win more often than you're going to lose by a long way. Just on that, just one final question before we find out how to contact you, Jason, or find out about your books. We, um, we quite often uh, talk about a quote from Bruce Lee, the famous movie star and martial artist. And he said, it's not the daily increase, but the daily decrease hack away at the unessentials. What's one thing that you have eliminated from your world in, say, the last three months, four months that's made a profound difference on your performance, productivity or your happiness? Like what are you currently hacking away to get rid of out of your day or what have you gotten rid of? You know, it's it's so profound because it's right along the same lines as respecting and honouring channel capacity. Mm-hmm. Uh, I couldn't say that in the last three to four months, I've really worked on dropping things because I've really for years been sensitive to getting the unessential things out of my life. And, and if there's one thing I think I would tell you that stands out that I've done a really good job of getting rid of, it's television. You know, I think it, it, most people, what they do is they start the day, they put the TV on the news. And what they're inundated with for the first 15, 20, 30, 40 minutes of their day are all the problems, all the nightmarish things going on around the world. And again, that which you focus on expands. If that's how you're starting your day, it's a little bit like going to the gas station and putting a bunch of poison in your car and then trying to drive the thing to work. I just, I know for my own life, and again, I think there's a disadvantage because oftentimes there are current events that I'm a little slow on knowing what's going on. So there's a disadvantage, but I'll tell you this, I wouldn't change it. I don't have any desire to change it. I just, I'm not going to watch the news. I'm going to eliminate as much television as I can from my life because I think focusing on all that negative stuff that's out there contributes to me putting the wrong gas in the tank. Jason, this has been a real privilege speaking with you. We so appreciate your time and all the sharing that you've dropped with us. It's been gold. Uh, for those people who want to check out your three books, learn more about your coaching, find out more about Jason Selk, where do they go? The easiest place would be jasonselk.com. All the books are on there and we try to get free coaching information away on the site. In addition, any of the social media outlets, whether it be Facebook or LinkedIn or Twitter. And I think if you just uh, search for Jason Selk or Dr. Jason Selk, we try to give one little free tip every day on social media 
that, that'd probably be the easiest way. Any of the books can be found at Amazon, but uh, if you want to find out what the books even are, the website, jasonself.com. Excellent. Well, thank you, mate. It's been a, an absolute delight. We, uh, I love your stuff, and I'm going to say that I think 10-Minute Toughness is a must-read for anybody who wants to deliver and be their best. So um, thank you for joining us. Thanks for sharing. Um, it's been great, mate. Thanks, Jason. Well, I appreciate being with you all. And it really does mean a tremendous amount to me to know that my work's making an impact. So thanks for all you do. I'm sure you're making an impact on others out there. I appreciate you all very much. Hi, I'm Maria Gronberg. I'm a climber. I climbed Mount Kilimanjaro four times and summited Mount Everest this year of May. Oh, man, I'm struggling through the Mojo Show. The Mojo Radio Show. If 10 Minute Toughness was your favourite book of the last five years, that was probably one of my favourite interviews of at least the last 12 months that we've done. He was incredible, wasn't he? Yeah, and the thing for me that I, I love about Dr Jason Selk is that it's actually, I use the word prescriptive, it's a step-by-step process. I've honestly been using it now for probably four years and going mm. through it the same way a sports person would use it. I have been using it everything I do and I use it with the kids when they're training for athletics. It's, it's a very, very prescriptive, very strong, thought out. The guy backs it with science. He walks the talk. And I've got to say, the level that, it, that he is working, he's got to have something going on. Robbo's 20 cents worth. So it's happening all too often, but uh, the rock and roll world has lost its own legend in the last couple of weeks. Yeah, there's a lot going on, isn't there? Yeah, Chester Bennington, the lead singer of Linkin Park, passed away uh, a bit over a week ago now. It sort of inspired me to go online and, and just to take a bit more of a look at Linkin Park's achievements. And I actually came across an interview with Chester and he was talking about their songwriting in general. Just have a quick listen to this. You know, when we were making our first record, we weren't making a record to sell records. We weren't trying to achieve something that we had already achieved in the past. We were just innocently making music that we loved and that we wanted to hear. Um, when you come out of the gate, and sell your first album is like, sells so many millions of copies. There is an expectation from a fan's perspective and from also a business perspective that you want to do that again um, and keep doing that. But we're not a manufacturer, you know? Um, We don't make car parts, we don't make soup, and we don't can things. We are artists and we want to push ourselves. After that interview, they released Minutes to Midnight, their third album, a completely different sound, com- completely changed from what was in their first two albums. In fact, if you didn't know the band, you probably wouldn't recognise that it was the same band. Went to number one straight away in 18 countries around the world. It's something Dr Jason Silk talks about in his books and I've heard him mention in interviews that one of the other attributes of successful people that he has found that allows them to stay around for so long, so not just to be successful, but successful people who've been able to do it over a period of time, so like a Federer or a Shane Warren. (laughs) (laughs) One of the attributes he talks about is they have an obsession for improvement. And I think... What I, I what comes to mind talking about Chester and relating it back to Dr. Jason Selk is that sometimes we look at these sports psychologists and think, well, it's a sport. It's different for me, mate. I work in a pharmaceutical company. Mate, it's different for me. I work in a bank. Mate, it's different for me because I drive a truck. Mate, it's different for me because I'm a school teacher. Well, it's no different whether you are 
fronting and riding for a rock band or you are a NASCAR driver or you are a guy who's currently working at the Crown Casino who's going back to serve me breakfast. It's no different. The, 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 the principles we can take from this are the same. I love that line, an obsession for improvement. And when you look at a band like Linkin Park, that obsession was so strong. It was stronger than the desire to please people. It was stronger than we should do, that worked, we should do that again, but a little bit different. They were like, well, actually, our obsession for improvement is how can we challenge ourselves? Where can we take ourselves, regardless of whether people like it or not, we're doing this because we're artists. And I think if people took that notion, salespeople, people in the workplace, leaders, people running a kindergarten, regardless of where you are, what you're doing, do you have an obsession for improvement and are you leading your own path? Because you go back to another fabulous book by Bronnie Ware, The Five Regrets of the Dying, the greatest regret of people who are checking out today is I never lived the life that I wanted to live. I lived through everybody else's eyes. I try to live up to everybody else's expectations. And when you check out that moment, your greatest regret, don't let it be that I did it for everybody else. You didn't do it for yourself. So take us out. Let's uh, let's play the band. Let's play some Lincoln Park. And I think appropriately, if you're talking about five regrets of the dying, we should probably play in the end. Right. It starts with one I don't know why. It doesn't even matter how hard you try. Keep that in mind. I designed this product to explain in due time. All I know, time is a valuable thing. Watch it fly by as the pendulum swings. Watch it count down to the end of the day. The clock takes life away. It's so unreal. Didn't look out below. Watch the time go right out the window. Trying to hold on to didn't even know. I wasted it all just to watch you go. I kept everything inside and even though I tried, it all fell apart. What it meant to me will eventually be a memory of a time I tried so hard.
Mojo Radio Show is produced and recorded in the studios of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at the Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. For more about Gary, see GaryBurtWhistle.com or to polish your next audio or video production, check out VoodooSound.com.au and for the right voice, RealtimeCasting.com. Andrew Peters speaking. See you next time.